Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Last week, I told you about reading Stephen King's On Writing and his experience with a teacher who made him feel ashamed of the stories he wrote. And I mentioned how we need to find ways to turn the volume down on those those voices that make us feel bad about what we do. And I thought of another example in my own writing life. I wrote to serve and protect for the Surrey International Writers Conference writing contest. And Casey Dyer, the coordinator of the contest, deemed it worthy of being a finalist. It didn't win, but her words to me were, quote, I loved this story. Loved it. Unquote. I kept submitting the story and nobody wanted to take it on. Then Colleen Anderson put out a call for submissions to an anthology she was editing. So I submitted to serve and protect. Now, the rule of thumb is that the longer it takes to hear back, the more positive you should feel because it hasn't been rejected right away. It means they're hanging on to it for some reason. So I waited and waited and tried not to think about it, but I got more and more excited. The submission guidelines had said all writers would hear back by, I don't know, whatever date it was, say February 28th. Well, it got to be like February 27th. And I finally, finally received that rejection. And I was so sad. But in the same letter, Colleen invited me to a party at her place. And Colleen came up to me and told me she wanted to explain. She said she loved my story, but she had to cut just one more from her list for the anthology. And she ultimately decided to cut mine because it was a science fiction collection. And the only science fiction element of my story was that it was alternate world. Everything else about it was regular, everyday life, today, Vancouver. So instead of feeling bad about her decision, I felt great. And then I submitted the story to another publication. And here's where things went off the rails a little. This editor from this publication, we will name them Jordan, had started a blog where they commented on their slush pile. That's the pile of submissions that grows on an editor's desk. I had read a few of these blog posts. And then this one caught my eye. Jordan did not like to serve and protect at all. I knew they were talking about my story because they quoted language I used in the story and talked quite openly about the subject matter. And Jordan clearly took offense to the story and made their thoughts very clear. Quote, there are some things in life that you don't deal with, unquote, in the way that I wrote it. That sounded a lot to me like a rule. It sounded to me like Jordan did not give me their permission to write that story, and certainly not in the way that I wrote that story. Yet another thing Jordan said was, maybe you can sell the story elsewhere. And the thing is, Jordan's voice might have been very loud indeed if I had not already heard Casey Dyer and Colleen Anderson's voices. But Casey's voice kept ringing in my ears. I love this story. Loved it. And Colleen's voice saying she really wanted to keep it but had to cut one more story and that my story just wasn't quite science fiction enough for her. 
I cranked their voices up and I dialed Jordan's way back, except the part where they said, maybe you can sell the story elsewhere. I had the courage to keep sending it out because of those louder voices. And yes, Jordan, I did indeed sell the story elsewhere. (laughs) It was published by Bundoran Press in 49th Parallels, which is an anthology of alternate Canadian histories and futures. It was the perfect fit. Incidentally, To Serve and Protect is my first audio short and is available on various audio retailers. And then further to that, Brian Rathbone uh, tweeted about this kind of thing last week too, about how some people will love your work and some people won't. And that's okay. That's why there are so many writers. Because there are so many readers and everybody likes different things. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 16 I Must Plead Again for Your Secrecy Juskelin could not bring himself to return to the revelry right away. His brain teemed with activity. Suspicion, self-doubt, confusion, anger, and resentment surged through him like bolts of electricity. If he admitted it to himself, there was an undercurrent of envy. Kier Halliden can gate. Frederick was correct to suggest that Jeskelin keep his eyes and ears open. Over a mug of beer, Jeskelin had wished for more evidence. She'll slip up, Frederick had said. Deceitful people always do. On his way back to the happy beer barrel, Jeskelin found himself sympathizing with Frederick Halen's plight. Here was a man who had dedicated a lifetime of service to his lord and had been dismissed, plucked and discarded, all because of some minor breaches of protocol. The man's love and respect for Kian after such treatment said much about his character, and his vehement support of the mission to find Alon's cure was touching, to say the least. Jeskelin felt honoured that the former captain had trusted him enough to share his burden. Poor fellow, I will certainly vouch on his behalf to Kian. There was a lot of truth behind his words, especially about Kier's headstrong nature and the way she successfully hid her true motives beneath a short-tempered personality. If she were always abrasive and tight-lipped, she had a ready shield for the truth. Back at the inn, Jeskelin asked the chambermaid for a bath. She trotted off to prepare it. Fetching his belongings from the common room, Jeskelin's mind was a swarm of thought and emotion— Kier was a willful, impulsive girl who acted in her own best interests most of the time. If anyone challenged her on any of her choices, she became irate. She clearly had violent tendencies. She had volunteered to come on this mission without ever having met Alon Mare. Why would she do that if not for reasons of her own that she preferred to keep to herself? Not to mention the fact that she could gate and denied it. Her arrogance was deplorable. Ten minutes later, as he poured a pot of hot water over his head, the mage still sifted through his thoughts. Kier had lied about what Frederick had said to her. She'd lied about a lot of things. She most definitely followed Frederick on the mountain path. All doubt of that had vanished. But why? Frederick had warned her to clear out of the mission. He'd accused her and found out the details of how she'd given Alon the Malison. Jeskelin was well aware of Kier's temper, as well as her ability to kill with cold calculation when she thought it necessary. Had she followed Frederick to kill him? 
Then they'd caught up with her. That would explain her crazed, distraught reaction to their appearance. Jeskelin felt very uneasy. I will be watching her closely. Misty reached into her saddlebag. When her slender fingers did not close around the cloth-wrapped package she expected to find, she arrested a curse. Instead, she breathed out slowly, calmly, and thought things through. Only one person besides Juggler knew about her souvenir. Misty didn't know how he did these things, but one thing she was sure of. He liked to play games. Ah, but Misty had her own games. She liked to pick and choose which ones she participated in. She did not like being provoked. In this way, he was trying to goad her into playing a game only he could possibly control. She smiled. She would not play. For the first time, Frederick did not jump out of his skin when Golgothar appeared in his room. "'My, aren't we relaxed this evening?' the tall man said archly. "'That went way better than I expected,' Frederick said with real eagerness. "'You were right. The mage was ready to hear anything against her, especially after I mentioned the gate. I thought his eyes would pop out of his head.' "'So the seed has been sown.' Frederick leaned against the wall. "'I think it was already sown. I think we actually fertilized it a bit.' He smiled, not least because of his comfort using the word we. "'Well done,' Golgothar put out his hand. Frederick hesitated, his smile altering subtly. Golgothar was on his side. Frederick shook Golgothar's hand. Soren Lowy's collection of weapons was nothing short of awe-inspiring to a young warrior like Kier. It was the reason he and his grandson shared a larger home than most of the townspeople. One whole room was dedicated to it. Shelf upon shelf lined the stone walls, and some were freestanding in the middle of the room. Like a library, Kier thought, custom-made to fit the various sizes of boxes, cases, and sheaths, for he did not leave them all out on display. "'It's a collection, not a museum,' the old man explained. With his lean six-foot frame, he reached with ease up to a top shelf and gently lifted down a leather case, about four feet long. "'I know what is in every container on every shelf, and if you asked to see a certain item, I'd be able to get it straight away. And I love them all.' He opened the case, revealing a leaf-bladed short sword with a simple ball pommel and wooden grip. Holding the box in one hand, he grasped the hilt in the other and raised it to shoulder height, peering down its length. Kier recognized instantly that Soren Lowy was not a mere collector. He was a sword fighter. It may have been a former self, but Kier could tell he would still be deadly if he wished. He lowered the weapon, grinned with boyish eagerness, and handed it hilt first over to her. "'How did you come by them all?' Kier asked, grasping the featherweight weapon in one hand and eyeing the blade for straightness, unconsciously mimicking the old man's pose. Before he could answer, she said, "'Isn't this from the pre-Luntif era? Maybe from Shona?' She was surprised at how the information from the history text came flooding back to her. For several incredibly swift hours, she talked weapons history and origin with Soren and tested balance, craftsmanship, metalwork, blade quality, material choice, design and style of sword, dagger, axe, morning star, shuriken, pieces dated from as far back as 800 years, long before Kean's and Valraker's time, way back when the world was subdivided into infinite numbers of provinces and territories. 
Soren was somewhat of an archaeologist, having traveled extensively in his youth to learn more about the histories he had studied. Some weapons he'd found, some he'd bought, some had been gifts. Kier continued to recall her own studies and learned new information from Soren while Todd sat by and watched and listened. And when their voices began to sound tired, he finally announced that he'd made a meal that waited in the other room. Kier was shocked that she was so hungry, considering the amount of fish and potatoes she'd belted back at dinner. She gratefully accepted the cool mug of beer from Todd and took several great long swallows. Falling into a wing-backed chair, she just caught sight of the moon peeking through the shutters on the westward window on its way down to the horizon. Death spirit, it can't be that late! It most certainly can. We've been talking about my collection for nearly six hours, Soren said, his warm voice revived by his beer. She shook her head with a grin of joyful disbelief and chomped into the large hunk of spicy cake still warm from the oven. Todd, were you baking all this while we were talking? She waved a hand at the low table laden with cookies, cake, cheese, and biscuits, amazed at how quickly the time had passed and how unaware she had been of the lad's activities. I feel so rude, like we ignored you. He brushed off her concerns with a shy smile. I don't mind it, he said. I was happy to see Grandad with someone to share all his stuff with. Anyway, we almost always have a snack this time of night, don't we, Grandad? Kier laughed, nearly spitting out crumbs. You call this a snack? And at the second hour after midnight? Soren leaned over and took a piece of cheese and an oat cake. Well, we don't have much else to do, do we, Todd? The old man's silver hair reflected amber in the firelight. We keep to ourselves, mostly. Todd's a message runner for anyone who needs him, and I toddle in the garden by day. He visits his mam and sister every day, but lives with me, so I'm not alone. We take care of each other, our family. Kier thought of fireside nights with Della knitting and singing, Gareth reading or playing his Saturn, and herself frowning and griping through her homework. The slightest hint of homesickness crept into her smile. But she would never have been content, like Todd, to remain at home just for the sake of being with someone, family or not. "'You'd probably be interested to see my sword,' Kier said suddenly, as if to banish the topic in her head. She fetched her newly acquired scabbard and weapon belt from the corner by the door. She half hoped Soren might be able to identify the sword for her. "'Interesting story about this one.' Sitting down in the chair, she held it upright, the point end resting on the plank floor in front of her, and wondered what to tell them. How would Soren receive the truth of her stealing from the dead? I found it in a clearing, way off the beaten track. Kier told them about the path and the compulsion she had to follow it. She tried to describe the eeriness of the mist and the wonder she and Jeskelin had felt at the scene of the age-old battle. When she talked about the voice, she hesitated. For a moment, losing her courage, the story just didn't sound credible at all. The sword drew me toward it, as if it were calling to me. That probably sounds pretty weird to you. She looked at the two of them sheepishly. Not at all, Soren said. Many of my weapons seem to find me in the same way. Let's see it, he added, with youthful intensity in his voice and twinkling blue eyes. She slowly drew her prized possession from its concealment and found herself oddly reluctant to make eye contact with her hosts until they reacted. Instead, she caught her own breath for the umpteenth time at the beauty of it, the way the blade reflected with perfection the light from the fire, captivating her with its flawlessness. The brilliant, glowing pommel and the absolute 
rightness of the way the hilt felt in her palm. Kier suddenly realized the room had been breathlessly silent for some time. She looked up, embarrassed. Both men were enraptured, their faces shining with awe. Have you ever seen the like of it? Soren held out his hand and she passed it to him. He did not respond right away. Todd went down on hands and knees on the floor and rubbed his finger over the place where the pin-sharp tip, even resting so lightly, had bored a small hole in the wood. "'No,' the grandfather said slowly. "'I can honestly say I have never laid eyes on such a weapon.' She searched his eye and was puzzled by the expression in it. He directed his gaze at her again and threw a mask over whatever he had been thinking. "'I can tell by the way you look at it. You are drawn to it still.' He raised the tip until it was parallel with the floor and ran a keen eye down its edge. Kier shrugged and nodded, leaning back in the chair nonchalantly. "'I believe you when you say you were compelled to pick this up,' he paused ever so slightly. "'No matter whose hands were on it when you found it.' Kier looked at him, startled, and tried to alter her expression to one of confusion or misunderstanding. His smile relaxed her. "'I only meant that its aura must be very strong, and you would have had to take it under any circumstances.' I have felt that way about some weapons, too. You did right. Todd, refill Kier's mug, will you please? Does the name Barakel mean anything to you? she asked. Barakel? He looked surprised or baffled. Now where did you hear that name? Kier shrugged. I heard someone say it and wondered if it had some historical significance. Soren stroked the flat side of the blade and studied it like he might an ancient text. "'I think Barakel might be a dark elven name,' he passed the sword back to her. "'Unfortunately, I can't enlighten you.' She observed his face. His words had held a tone of wonder, maybe even surprise. With the quick tempo of his denial, she didn't believe him. However, a man of his experience must have his reasons.' She sheathed the sword and laid it on the floor, and picked up Brendau's. This one is nice, too, and mostly of interest because of whom it belonged to. She passed it, sheath and all, to Soren, nodding her thanks to Todd for the refill. Oh? Soren examined the lines and trefoils on the sheath before drawing the weapon. He admired the delicate strength of the hilt, and Kier was proud to notice that even after all it had been through, the blade was still perfect. It belonged to my trainer. He gave it to me just before I left Frath. I don't think he's famous or anything, but he is a Wemniar, so you know it must be a good sword. Soren's gaze was focused on the blade. He didn't respond directly. Testing its grip in both hands, he looked pensive, like he was trying to think of a tactful assessment. Finally, he said, You're right. It's a beauty. They talked a while longer, but Kier began to fade and was uncertain what to do. It was too late to bother finding her way back to the inn, but she could hardly stay here. Todd solved the problem. Granda, I think it would be unkind to make Kier pay for such a partial night at an inn. Why don't we let her stay here? Actually, I had to prepay because of the rooms all being full. Still, it would be foolish to bother making your way back at this hour, Todd said. Oh, that's all right, really, Kier protested mildly. Truth be told, she could have slept on top of a woodpile at that moment. Underneath the woodpile, even. Of course she should stay here, Soren agreed. She'll take your bed and you can sleep in here. 
Kier did protest at that. She wouldn't have her host put himself out to that extent. In the end, Todd brought several blankets and she made herself comfortable on the floor in front of the fire, on which he piled a few more pieces of coal before retiring himself. She fell into a deep slumber almost immediately, and so was completely unaware of the old man who returned to sit by the fire for a while to study her sleeping face. Derry knew he was scowling, and that it was unbecoming to a man of his supposed training and experience. How could he help it? Why did Kier have to so persistently anger him this way? To be fair, attempt fairness anyhow, maybe she wasn't doing it on purpose. It sure comes naturally to her, he fumed. He had escorted the redhead home upon her request. How could he refuse? When he'd said goodnight at her door, she was clearly annoyed about something. Her thank you was anything but heartfelt. Oh, well, he guessed he just wasn't meant to understand women. I need a drink before I'll ever sleep, he thought, and wove through the revelers back toward the square. Kier had obviously stood there on the porch because it was so close to the dancing area, a great place to meet men, turn them down as dance partners, but think of something else to do. Oh, stop it, he scolded himself. He decided not to join the others at the happy beer barrel, but carry on to his own inn, the odds and suds, an adroit move to avoid talking with them about the same old things. They probably had found more interesting activities anyway. The door of the odds and suds burst open, and Derry sidestepped nimbly to avoid a collision with a geezer whose walk had more back-and-forth movement than the tide. The captain went in, and the pickled timbre of the drunk singing faded as the door closed. A whiskey in each hand, Derry smoldered at the bar. Why did Kier frustrate him so much? She seemed to avail herself of every opportunity to take a jab at him. Even under the guise of being nice, she rubbed him the wrong way. These young things he'd whirled about with all evening hung on every word of his stories of valor and danger. To them, he was important, a man to admire. Not only was Kier not impressed with such things, she had her own stories, but it didn't even seem to cross her mind that he deserved respect, even deference, because he was the captain. She had her own views about everything, challenged his authority, and was constantly itching for a fight. She took liberties with him that the other company members wouldn't dream of, and he could never find it in himself to put her in her place. He felt powerless to do anything but let her get away with it. The last straw was when he saw her with that youth. He was, what, maybe sixteen, seventeen at most? She held his hand longer than necessary. She glanced Derry's way as she talked to the young man. She was so defiant. Look at me doing whatever I want, she was saying, practically daring him to stop her. And then she had the nerve to give him that little shrug and grin as if to say, it's just so easy for me. Damn it, he was supposed to be taking the night off. Derry tossed back both shots of whiskey to forget his frustration. Even the news of Skimnoddle's success was insufficient to edge his troubles out of his mind. Overreacting again, he supposed. But why am I the only one who notices how easily she separates herself from the task at hand? He sighed. Does she even remember why we're here? Derry settled up and hauled himself to the well to rehydrate before retiring to bed, where he saw without even trying that she had not returned to the inn. More than once throughout the long night, he awoke to see she still was not there. The ingot of black lead tumbled and swelled in the pit of his stomach like a snowball rolling down a hillside. 
My slippered feet pad softly across the floor, through the doorway, and up the stairs. I'm in the brightly lit corridor. The straw mats warm the floor. The baskets of flowers and candelabra evenly spaced along the stone walls make this a more homey corridor than any other in the castle. The door to the library is open on my right. I pass by. The smooth, varnished little wooden box in my hand is the gift for the lady. It's urgent that I give it to her, but I have no concern that I'll fail. Her door is this one. I straighten my apron and knock. Her clear voice answers, and I enter. She sits with legs crossed in her wing-backed armchair by the fire, reading. It's in high elvish, so I can't read the title. Her dark hair gleams brown, red, gold, and her deep burgundy blouse looks good on her, the drawstring at the top hanging loosely open. It's a pity, really, but I carry on. For you, my lady, I say. It just arrived. I hold out the box. I can't help but smile. From whom? she replies, receiving it from me. From his lordship, my lady. Eyes are steady. Heartbeat, too. She opens the box and pulls out the small leather case. She lifts the lid, and with her slender finger she traces the length of the blue and gold gem-inlaid serpent-shaped necklace where it lies on the deep red velvet, a red that matches her blouse. It's beautiful. She turns to me. Do you know what this is, Misha? No, milady, I lie with sincerity. She draws the snake out of its resting place. The serpent is a symbol of undying love, she tells me. The word undying is ironic to me. She clasps the necklace behind her neck. Do you like it? she asks. She adjusts the position slightly so the blue serpent lies centered on her chest. Please get my looking-glass off that table, Misha. I want to see what it looks like. I fetch the glass and hold it up for her. Do you like it? she asks. Yes, milady, I assure her. Is there anything else you need, milady? I put the glass beside the remains of her tea-things on the table next to her chair. Thank you, Misha. No, you may go. She smiles at the space in the air in front of her, still lightly fingering the trinket. She doesn't ask me to take the tea-things, so I don't. I won't do anything more than I have to. I curtsy and move toward the door. As I reach for the polished brass handle, I hear her say, Dear Kian, I am successful. I feel triumphant as I close the door. I must share the news, so I run down the corridor. Kiera woke, gasping, and sat up. Bedroll, fireplace, wing-backed armchairs, sliced tree-trunk table, swords on the floor next to her. All the signs of familiarity served to dissipate the tightness in her throat. Once she was certain it was gone, she crawled out of bed and padded to the bucket to get a dipper full of water. Her shaking finally stopped with a series of deep breaths. Returning to her bed on the floor, she sat on it and dug her knuckles into her eyes. Who am I in that dream? she demanded of no one. Why am I dreaming it? Kier knew one thing unequivocally. That necklace, if it truly existed, was no gift of love from Kian. Kier slept soundly after that. Too soundly. The sun was up when her eyes opened. She blinked a few times before she remembered she was supposed to be meeting with the others first thing this morning. She let out a small yelp and hurriedly folded her bedding. "'Can I offer you a warm drink to start your day?' Soren said, and she whirled around, startled by the voice. "'No, thank you so much, but I have to get back.' 
"'Where is it you and your friends are off to?' Soren asked. Kier hesitated, but decided that someone as well-traveled and educated in history would likely take an interest in their destination. In fact, he might even know something of them. "'We're going to the Inden Caves.' "'Ah!' He sat down in the same chair he had occupied last night. He didn't have the air of someone about to show a guest out. Kier finished folding, trying to look hurried. Soren tapped the arms of his chair and looked as if he were going to whistle, but didn't. "'The Inden Caves,' he said. "'Haven't heard anybody mention them in years, let alone going there.' "'No, I suppose not.' Kier secured her weapon belt around her waist and reached for her baldric. She slung it over her shoulder and stopped when Soren spoke again. "'Don't go there.' "'Pardon? What do you mean?' she asked with impatient perplexity. "'I mean you shouldn't go there,' Soren said firmly. "'We have to.' "'Not straight there, anyway.' She looked at the door, at the all-too-bright sunlight telling her how late she was. She planted her feet to keep from tapping them. Um, why not? Do you know how to enter? A pit opened in her stomach. No. Sit down. Soren moved to the counter and began scooping a coarse, deep brown powder into a cylindrical jug. Kier sat heavily and took a breath to calm her impatience. She couldn't leave without hearing him out. She would just have to accept the scolding when it came. Soren carried the jug to the fire and poured water into it from the kettle that Kier had not noticed hanging on the hook. "'My grandson is good to me. He always puts the water on before he leaves. He knows how much I enjoy my kawa in the morning.' Ah, that answered Kier's next question. She couldn't imagine Todd missing out on a chat like the one they were about to embark on. Soren set the jug on the little table, which had been cleared of last night's snack items, and went back to put a few things on a tray, including two mugs. It was obvious the old man had no intention of speaking further until he'd finished his deliberate preparations. Kier gulped down the anxiety that swelled in her throat. The tray finally was set upon the table, and Soren lowered his long frame into the chair. When he spoke, he did not look at her, but put a heaping scoop of what looked like maple sugar into each mug. As I'm sure you are aware, it is sometimes difficult deciding who to trust. I have met a good many people in my time, and would choose to trust only a handful of them. He poured a liberal amount of cream on top of the sugar in the mugs. I have reasons for choosing you. "'Yet I will not share those reasons with you.' "'Kier wordlessly accepted Soren's decision. "'What I am about to tell you,' he said, "'is not common knowledge. "'If it became known, all kinds of people, "'with all manner of intentions, "'would come flocking to the Inden Caves. "'Curiosity seekers, vandals, or worse. "'Here is the trickiest part. "'If it became known that someone gave you this information, "'certain people, with more specific intentions, "'would come flocking here, to this very house, "'and that must be avoided at whatever cost. "'Do you understand me?' "'Kier had a good enough imagination "'to picture what those specific intentions might be. "'She nodded. "'That being the case,' I must ask you not only to not reveal who told you this, but not to reveal that anybody told you anything. I cannot tell you how to solve this problem, because obviously you will be required to share the information with your traveling companions. I can only hope that they trust you enough to accept your information without much explanation. I beg your discretion as to where and with whom you spent the evening. 
I'll come up with something. You have my confidence. Thank you. He seemed to breathe easier at her assurance. What do you know about the caves? Kier shook her head. Nothing, really. Derry knows roughly where they are, but I'd never heard of them. We're looking... I'm not surprised. That you hadn't heard of them is intentional. The Indian caves were discovered, or created, no one is entirely sure, by dark elves about a thousand years ago. I'm sure you are also aware of the dark elves' notorious secrecy. I've heard it referred to as privacy, but yes, I know what you mean. Here Soren paused again, and Kier thought she might squeal. Please just get on with it. He took up a long, thin wooden stick, on one end of which was a disc pierced with tiny holes and covered with a circle of muslin. He placed the disc on top of the jug, and Kier saw that it was just smaller than the inside of the jug, so it scraped the inside as Soren slowly pushed it down. Though she half expected the steaming water to spill out the top, she realized that he was pushing slowly enough that the water came through the mesh of the fabric. When he had pushed it down as far as it would go, Soren lifted the jug and poured some of what was now a rich brown liquid into a mug, added another liberal dollop of cream, and passed it to her. It smelled like hickory, a pungent, pleasant smell that felt warm and alive. So this was kawa. She'd heard of it, but had never had occasion to try it. You might want to give it a stir. Here, he passed her a spoon. The Indian Caves, he went on as if there had been no gap, were one of their strongholds. The tales, and that's about all I know of it, say that the caves were the main dwelling of the highest families, the setting for a good many gatherings of the elders, tunnel upon tunnel, room upon room for ritual, magic, perhaps even tombs. I have heard that the caves were the main connecting center for their travel and telepathic communications with the Cimrian people. Kier laughed in spite of herself. The Cimrian! Her denial faded into mere skepticism as she beheld his unchanged expression. You can't be serious. He looked at her darkly. Oh, but I am. She shook her head. There's no such thing, though. The Cimrian aren't real. Because you've never met one. Kier felt her face go blank. The Cimrian are just stuff of legend, ghost stories that made you squeal, but you never really believed them. Stories, legends, have to come from somewhere, do they not? Tell a story over and over enough times, and the truth of it is bound to bend a bit, but it is still in there. The Cimrian have ceased their connection with our world, but that does not mean they never existed. Do you believe in dark elves? Of course. They vanished, too. Kier was skeptical, but it was hard to argue with someone like this. Soren went on. The Cimrian and Dark Elves were always closely associated. The Cimrian were a quiet people trying to avoid drawing attention to themselves. The story started the same way most folk tales begin. Someone has an experience, perhaps sees something they can't explain, makes up a story about it. The tale gets shared around the fire along with all the songs and stories that are told, and with repeated telling, it grows, changes, evolves. The Cimrian began to be victims of persecution as a result of these stories, and they slowly but surely retreated into their own society, associating less and less with the outside world, much like the Dark Elves. Dregor took up the war against them all, taking both Dark Elves and Cimrian prisoner, burning down their villages, there was torture. 
Many speculate that he was searching for the secret of their magic. He was trying for an all-out genocide. What would you have done in their position? Kier didn't need long to come up with an answer. I would leave. Soren nodded. A generation ago, the Dark Elves in Cimmerian did just that. Kier was too busy sitting dumbly to ask any of the many questions that had popped into her mind. Instead, she sipped her drink and was pleasantly surprised by its rich flavor. The late hour was unimportant for the moment. More sugar? Kier shook her head. Mainly because of their connection with the Cimmerian, but for other reasons as well. The Dark Elves did not want uninvited guests, tourists, or explorers like you, if you must know, he added sardonically. Few people ever knew about the cave's existence, and that number has dwindled to near nothing. Even now, if any of the remaining Dark Elves knew you were going there, they would not be too happy about it. Here, Kier kept her smile cloaked. She doubted that. But Soren went on. The caves are, in effect, locked. Locked? She hadn't really assumed they would be open-air caves that they could just walk into, but she hadn't given it much thought. She wondered if anyone else had. Well, couldn't someone just come along and pick the lock, or even magic it open? She thought of the magic key Valraker had given her. No, it can't be broken, picked, hewn, magicked, or even blown open with a blasting spell. It is dark elvish, and has a dark elvish method of entry. He took a long swallow of kawa and sighed contentedly. Can't imagine a day starting without some of this. It's very good. I've never had it before. She took another sip. So what exactly is a dark elvish method of entry? Soren tapped his foot against the leg of his armchair, as if questioning the wisdom of answering her. He glanced out the window. If the old man did not have such an air of self-assuredness, Kier might have thought he was nervous. Please tell me. His voice, when he finally spoke, was low and secretive. There is a key. Now that he'd uttered those words, the rest rushed out like pigs escaping their pen. Not a conventional key, nothing you would recognize as such. I was told by its keeper, or else I would not have guessed. It is a disc, he illustrated with his fingers, made of rock. One side is virtually covered in an intricate pattern of runes. I was told that entry is absolutely impossible without it. How? Kier cleared her throat. Where do I find the keeper? You can't. She's gone. Gone? Kier's heart sank. But she no longer has it. Who does? Kier asked anxiously, and was afraid she might sound in too much of a hurry, but Soren didn't seem to notice. She gave it to me, asking me to deliver it. Certain dangers made me believe I was not a suitable courier. I passed it on, and I'm not sure it was the right thing to do. It's been a long time, and I don't even know if he'll still have it, but you must try if you're going to access the caves. Perched on the edge of her seat, Kier thought she might scream with impatience. Come on, just out with it, she thought. There is an outpost southeast of here, a garrison of the Realm Guard. They are positioned there ostensibly to prevent north-south movement by Dregor and to cover the west flank of the Tree of Life. The commanding officer is one Colonel Greenberg. He is a half-elf and understands the dire need for its protection— I placed the key in his care a number of years ago, suggesting that with the army it would be safer than in my possession. I asked that he transport it further south at some point. It may be he has already done so, though. 
Soren spread out his hands. I doubt he has taken the time. Moreover, he believed it made sense for it to remain near the caves. I don't disagree. The old man shrugged. Still, I'm not fully at ease about it. Speak to him. Convince him of your need. He paused and bit his lip. What is your need? What takes you to the caves? An errand. Kian Barthelon's wife is ill, and we've been told one of the ingredients for her cure can be found there. Soren looked stricken, but swallowed Morkawa, and his face cleared. You know Kian. He crossed one leg over the other, which means... He looked down at his cup and held it in both palms as if warming them. You might suggest to Colonel Greenberg that you could transport the key south. Dark elvish key. Kier's mind was a buzz, but something clicked. The key needs to go to Dunvaran. Soren slowly nodded his head. Kier sighed. It was obvious. The key would be safest in the hands of a dark elf. Valraker was the only one left, unless... Kier thought briefly of the one they'd met in an alpine meadow weeks ago, Huranan Danae. Was he really a dark elf? And if so, were there more wherever he came from? And you don't want the key to be traced back to you. For... Soren's face clouded. Several reasons, not the least of which is that the enemy must never gain access to the Inden Caves. I must plead again for your secrecy. You have it, she said. Maybe the colonel will let us transport the key. At the very least, we could borrow it, and then we can tell Val where it is. Soren looked relieved at the prospect. Kier gulped down some kawa and heaved a sigh. Well, that will save us all kinds of time in the long run. I'm deeply grateful to you. She was. What would have happened if they'd gone straight to the caves only to discover they could not enter? Would even Kami have been able to help in this? And Soren was not exaggerating his fear of discovery. Kier sensed it rather than requiring proof. He was a swordsman, and something told her that there was more history to him than just that comprised in his weapon collection. No, she couldn't doubt him if she tried. Well, I guess it's rather fortuitous that we met. He smiled. You might say that. Without even thinking, Kier stood up and began unbuckling her weapon belt. She deftly slid the carved leather sheath of Brendau's bastard sword off the end. Here, this is for you. She held it out to him. Soren's jaw slackened. His back straightened. A new brightness shone in his eyes. For me? She nodded vehemently. Yes, absolutely. I can't thank you enough for entrusting me with that information, and I know how reluctant you are to give yourself away. It's all I have, but I can't think of anyone who would appreciate it more. Soren stared at her in disbelief. She nodded at him and took a step closer, and he finally believed her. He set his mug on the table and rose to accept it. This is... I am overcome. Thank you. Your gift is of immense value to you. I am well aware of that. And yet you give it to me? As he gently lifted it out of her hand, she was stung by a pain in her heart, but she also felt the rightness of what she was doing. You can't imagine the gratitude that will be felt by, well, a lot of people. She strapped the belt back on and was struck by the emptiness at her left side. In an effort to fill it, she adjusted the straps of her baldric, so the long sword hung lower and rested her hand on the hilt, appreciating the feeling of it at her side. The sword fighter held out her hand. 
Thank you, Soren Lowy, for a fascinating evening and an informative morning. You are most welcome. You will always be welcome in our home, Kier Halliden. And thank you again for this. And, he let his eyes twinkle, I will no longer worry about your incurring the wrath of the Dark Elves as you enter the caves. With that, she left the stone house and tore through the town back to the admonishment that undoubtedly awaited her. How in seven hells am I going to explain all this? ever noticed on TV or in movies that whenever a character is out in the rain and gets wet and cold, the next scene is invariably them sitting there wrapped in a blanket in front of a fire and drinking a hot beverage and sneezing. <laughs> and Matt and I yell at the TV, you don't get colds that way. A cold is a virus. And I'm here to prove this point. Due to COVID, I have been washing my hands like crazy and haven't been near anybody in so long. As a result, not only have I not had COVID, I also haven't even had a cold. TV would have us believe that we get a cold anytime we're outside, particularly if it's rainy. Now, it rains here a lot, and I have never gotten a cold just by getting wet in the rain. There's a little thing for you to think about. Thank you to my family, Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. Thanks to David and Sharon. Shout out to the original six. And thanks very much to you for listening. Now go be fantastic.